Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ LOUIEXIV on both Twitter and Instagram. Check out our merch, our iconic niche legend dad hat, our mere superstar tee at poppantheonpod.com in the merch store. And of course, to subscribe to our our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And speaking of Patreon, not only do you get bonus content there, but you also get access to the list at my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, which is having its next installment in Los Angeles on Saturday, May 6th at Resident Downtown. So, I'd love to see everybody there. This is a party for queers and our allies, everybody who loves pop. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you can DM us on Patreon and you can get on the list plus one. Everybody else, please buy tickets using the link in the show notes of this episode. I will also post it on social media. This party is so much fun. I love meeting Pop Pantheon listeners at this party. And again, that will be May 6th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles be there or I really don't know what else you're doing to be honest with you. This is the third installment of our girl group trilogy for April. We began with episode one which covered 50s and 60s girl groups who created the idea of the girl group as we know it. The Ronettes, the Marvelettes, the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las. Last week we talked about the iconic 90s hip-hop inflected R&B indebted girl group TLC, one of my all-time favorites. And this week we're talking about a girl group of much more recent history, Fifth Harmony, which was started on X Factor in the early 2000s and had a brief run of success through the middle of the last decade. This was a really interesting conversation about how girl groups have operated in the modern day and about this one in particular, which produced some pretty fun music that I have to say I enjoyed a lot more than I was expecting to going into this. One quick programming note, about three quarters of the way through taping this episode, my computer unexpectedly crashed. Thankfully, we had backup audio recording on Zoom. So for the first, unfortunately, three quarters or so of the episode, my audio is not the best it's ever been, but it gets better as the episode goes on. But that's what happens. Shit happens sometimes, you know. So without further ado, here's the final installment of our girl group trilogy, Fifth Harmony. By the time Fifth Harmony was put together by Simon Cowell on his competition show X Factor in 2012, girl groups, at least of the American variety, were in no man's land. The previous wave of the mid to late aughts, headlined primarily by the Pussycat Dolls and Danity Kane, had died out when members of each of these groups attempted to, uh varying degrees of success to launch solo careers. No new outfits had risen to fill the void in their absence. And while these groups had certainly had hits, neither had come close to scaling the commercial heights of groups from earlier waves like Spice Girls or TLC. So when Cowell endeavored to create a new girl group out of X Factor contestants who had auditioned as solo artists, a move he'd successfully pulled off twice in the preceding years on the UK version of the show with One Direction and Little Mix, it seemed both like working a tried and true formula, but also a risk. Were American pop audiences then in the thrall of a 
panoply of generation-defining solo female stars like Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Rihanna, and Beyonce, even hospitable to the idea of a new girl group? Looking back on Fifth Harmony's brief career, the answer is maybe. But boy, did they produce a few fun hits as they attempted valiantly to figure that out. Fifth Harmony consisted of five young women. San Antonio-born Ali Hernandez, Orange County's Dinah Jane, Miami-bred Lauren Uregi, and Atlanta's own Normani Corday Hamilton and Camila Cabello, the latter of whom had been born in Havana, Cuba. Each auditioned solo for the second season of X Factor, a singing competition show Cowell had created in the wake of his success with pop cultural juggernaut American Idol, but which was failing to hit the zeitgeist in the same way Idol had. Despite none of them having any major musical experience, Simon saw some potential in each of these five women, just not necessarily on their own. Own. As such, early in the season, he decided to place them together in a group, originally under the name Lilas, an acronym for Love You Like a Sister, and later changed to the fan-voted Fifth Harmony. Charming in their on-the-fly, prefab scrappiness, and clear desire to please, the group performed a wide variety of pop standards past and present, ranging from Taylor Swift's We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together to the Beatles' Let It Be, ultimately placing third on the show. Following X Factor, Fifth Harmony landed a joint deal with Simon Cowell and L.A. Reid's labels Psycho Music and Epic Records, and six months later released their first single, Miss Movin' On, a booming anodyne Ryan Tedderkor power ballad which did only moderately well, peaking at number 76 on the Hot 100. Their debut EP, Better Together, dropped soon after, placing at number six on the Billboard 200. But the Fifth Harmony thing, if you will, didn't really gel until 2014 when they began to roll out their first album, 2015's Reflection. Starting with lead single, Boss, 5H ditched the chaste uplift of Miss moving on for maximalist borderline tacky but undeniably fun and good-natured hip-hop inflected empowerment bops that presented a band that didn't take themselves too seriously loved to directly big up their idols like beyonce michelle obama oprah and mariah carey and reveled in their gleefully all current sound All of this led to a series of increasingly popular hits, with Boss peaking at number 43, follow-up single Sledgehammer at number 40, and finally, the bombastic ode to self-regard Worth It, a Frankenstein hybrid of DJ Mustard's Skeletal G-Funk and Jason Derulo's Talk Dirty, hitting number 12. Reflection, a genuinely great album which dispensed a very specific brand of joyous post-Destiny's Child girl power, complete with ecstatic payons to teenage love, searing kiss-offs to men who just don't make the cut, and of course, the equating of feminine and wealth accumulation, became a decent-sized hit, earning good reviews and eventually going platinum. The record didn't exactly make 5H into superstars, but it did turn them into solid radio fodder hitmakers who had made an album better than any reality show manufactured lineup should have. They were never true originals like TLC or polished innovators like Destiny's Child or even performance virtuosos like Pussycat Dolls, but their roughness around the edges added to their charm, making them somewhat of an everyman's girl group. Fifth Harmony followed up Reflection the next year with their sophomore album, 
2016's 727. Here, they continue to indulge in the sounds of contemporary club-oriented hip-hop, while also incorporating the then-trendy subgenre cringily referred to as Trop House. The record also showcased songwriting, production, and feature contributions from a real murderer's row of some of the biggest names in pop, from Jack Antonoff to Stargate to Ty Dolla Sign and Missy Elliott. While 727 didn't earn the critical plaudits of reflection, it managed to produce the group's biggest hit, the sleek, gloriously gaudy Work From Home, a glimmering slice of post-DJ Mustard electronic hip-hop that hilariously equates good sex with the death of office culture. Work From Home peaked at number four on the Hot 100, making it the first top five single in the U.S. by a girl group since the Pussycat Dolls' Buttons 10 years earlier. 727 debuted at number four on the Billboard 200 and managed to sell a million and a half copies worldwide. But just as they'd reached this breakthrough moment, Fifth Harmony seemed to just as quickly unravel. In late 2016, Cabello, who had by some measures become the centerpiece of the group, both as a vocalist and performer, but also due to a public are-they-aren't-they flirtation with fellow pop star Shawn Mendes, and solo hits with Mendez on I Know What You Did Last Summer and the top five hit Bad Things with Machine Gun Kelly, abruptly announced she was leaving the group. After a slew of conflicting public statements from Cabello and the other four members of Fifth Harmony, it became clear that the ruptures in the fivesome were very real and that Cabello was indeed out. The foursome proceeded to release one more album, 2017's Self-Titled, which debuted at number four but failed to produce a hit. In early 2018, the remaining four announced an indefinite hiatus in which each would pursue solo careers that continues to this day. Fifth Harmony are one of the best-selling girl groups of all time, with 33 million albums sold, and have been declared the biggest girl group of the 2010s by Billboard. All three of Fifth Harmony's studio albums charted within the top 10 of the Billboard 200, making them the girl group with the most top 10 entries on the chart in the 21st century. Worth It was the first music video by a girl group to surpass 1 billion views on YouTube. Fifth Harmony have received an American Music Award, four VMAs, four iHeart Music Awards, 10 Teen Choice Awards, and three MTV Europe Music Awards. In 2015, Fifth Harmony were the first ever Billboard Women in Music Group of the Year. Here with me to discuss the short but fascinating career of the most recent American girl group of note, Fifth Harmony, is Service 95's Brennan Carley. Okay, I'm here with Service 95 editor Brennan Carley. Brennan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk all things Fifth Harmony. These have been my girls for the longest time, and I'm so glad I get to share my inner demons with the world. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually going to be my first question for you, Brennan, is why Fifth Harmony? What is it about them that's made you, I don't want to say a harmonizer, because I don't want to be reductive towards your critical eye on things, but what's made you such a big fan of Fifth Harmony? What speaks to you on such a huge level about the group? I think for me, what originally grabbed me about Fifth Harmony is how scrappy they felt in the beginning. Mm. It always felt like the odds were against Fifth Harmony and something just really drew me to them for that very reason. Girl groups have always had a rocky trajectory when it comes to critical success in America. And even though they were put together by a reality show, there was something that felt very homespun and organic about them. It felt like they were succeeding against all the odds. Girl groups don't really work these days. Singing show contestants don't really work these days. 
And they were just making music that was fun and good and didn't try to be anything smarter or sharper than it needed to be. And I just felt attached to them for some reason. The underdog thing is always a deeply appealing thing when it comes to pop stars. And they do have that. This will be the final episode in a trilogy that we have done about girl groups. So we did on our first episode a kind of omnibus on the Ronettes the Marvelettes, the Shangri-Las, and the Shirelles. And then we did a second episode about TLC. And I've been thinking a lot just about girl gangs, what we like about them, what we don't like about them, the camaraderie of them, the celebration of teenagerdom being one of the main things that I feel like threads a lot of these groups together, whether you're talking about the ebullient hip-hop leanings of early TLC music and celebrating sex positivity and all of that kind of stuff, or you're talking about the way that these 50s and 60s girl groups celebrated what it was like to have big emotions as a teenage girl when you were waiting for your boyfriend to call or waiting for the postman to bring you a letter from your boyfriend or <laughs> listening to things your mother told you advice about life. That was a novel concept that the girl group wave kind of ushered in was they were part of a bigger movement in the mid-century of celebrating the teenage perspective of teenager even being a word that we even used, right? So I was thinking a lot about that with Fifth Harmony as sort of representing a really specific brand of teenager dumb for the mid 2010s, let's say. And what I really enjoyed listening to them this time is the way that the music feels incredibly occurrent for that period. Sometimes I was like, if you wanted a time capsule for what pop music sounded like in 2014, 15, 16, 17, go listen to these albums. But I also love the way that they position themselves in this broader lineage of girl groups by explicitly shouting out girl groups from the past and then celebrating this very specific brand of mid-2010s young womanhood that is about self-empowerment and about making money in order to have independence and these really specific things where they both built on ideas of girl groups past but also made it very much singular to their era is my long-winded way of saying what I'm saying here. Completely. And I I think that there was always something to root for with the Fifth Harmony gals, too. I mean, most of them started in the group when they were extremely young. Yeah. If we're talking about teenagerdom, the oldest of the bunch, obviously, was Allie Brooke. When she came, she was even in a different category from them on the X Factor. And I know we'll get into the X Factor of it all. More than so many other groups, you were there from the literal beginning with these gals. And it was very easy to feel like you were a part of their journey and so, so many times when other quote-unquote prefabricated groups came together and were singing about similar topics, whether that was making your own money and feeling independent and talking about the trials and tribulations of girlhood and being a teen and being an independent woman, it often felt like, yeah, sure, well, who are the men behind this who were writing these songs? Mm. And with them, yeah, totally, they had this system behind them who were absolutely aiding them, especially on those first two albums. But I think... There was just an authenticity to what they were doing because you could see them from when they were just scared little teens on that stage right. who had faced rejection. <laughs> and you got to see them all the way through to the work from home era where it was like, oh, these are not just scared little kids anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, they really grew into their fierceness. I was thinking <laughs> as I was rewatching a lot of the music videos, there is that journey of you see them on stage at X Factor and you really see them as these little girls with big dreams. And then you get to their middle period. I mean, again, it's kind of funny to talk about all of that in girl group terms because they tend to be very short lived. And this group certainly fits that trope of girl groupdom. But there was definitely a huge evolution 
in terms of them stepping into themselves as performers, as musicians, as women, as fully embodied, grown-up sexual beings that was really fun to watch and also kind of made me a little bit sad in terms of how much many of them have struggled to get solo careers off the ground. And I'm sure we're going to come back to that at the end of the conversation. But obviously, there's the Normani of the whole situation. There's Camilla being the most successful of the group, but still struggling to find her solo identity. And that's not an uncommon thing in girl groups either. I mean, we were just talking about TLC, a group that was kind of greater than the sum of its parts and in which none of the main three girls were able to really have a successful career outside of the group. And that can be kind of the magic of these girl groups is there's something about seeing a group of women come together when it does work, like it does in these specific instances, that is its own form of powerful pop experience, I guess, and sometimes isn't necessarily even about the individuals and it's more about how the pieces work together. And that's particularly interesting in the context of a group that got put together by somebody else. And I'll be interested to know your interpretation of how they all really felt about that at the end of the day. I'm not saying that they're not going to have success as solo artists and that Camilla has not already had success and Normani hasn't had some success. And they all haven't had their moments. But it is this thing where there's something intangibly magical about the union of the group that a lot of these girl groups feel like they represent to me in my mind. And like this group certainly fits into that for me. I was wondering, as my first question for you, or maybe my second question for you, we've talked a lot about on the show how the girl groups come in waves. They usually come in settings of numerous groups at one time. Just preceding Fifth Harmony, where were we in the girl group ins and outs, I guess, in terms of broader pop history? Like, what was happening in the era just preceding Fifth Harmony? You can go back as far as you feel like you want to talk about it as we get to the point of their formation on X Factor. So it was an interesting period where... It depends on which side of the pond you're looking at. In right. the UK, you had really successful girl groups. They never really went away until, I would say, mid-late 10s. Mm. Little Mix is, I would say, the closest precursor to Fifth Harmony. Mm. They were an X Factor UK product. They were prefab like Fifth Harmony. They lost a member very famously. I'm trying to put that as politically correctly as I can. <laughs> you succeeded, I think. Uh -huh, thank you. Mm -hmm. But you also have groups like, I think we're right on the heels when Fifth Harmony forms of Pussycat Dolls, right. a very successful era for them in America. where it was obviously also one successful member and are they all complimentary or is this one person maybe going to go off and do her own thing? And obviously that's a completely different episode talking about the Nicole of it all, but it was that same push and pull of the tension within the group of, we all sort of know who the lead singer is, but also is she going to be able to push outside of those confines and succeed on her own or does she need the weight and the support and the complementary styles of the other members of the Pussycat Dolls. So I would argue Fifth Harmony came along when there was, in America, sort of a dearth of girl groups. I am a huge Girls Aloud person. Right. And so if we're looking at a calendar, they had just done their 10 tour in 2012, which was the big farewell. This is it. We are all doing this one last time. Very clearly, get in now if you want to see us, because this is it. This is our moment.
So there were no illusions about what was happening next with the state of girl groups. There was just an open field for someone like Fifth Harmony to come along. And I think, frankly, Simon Cowell knew that. Simon Cowell is a very smart business person and knew what had succeeded in the past, had been doing these reality competition series for a decade plus at this point, and realized that, all right, these are five people who can't succeed individually. Mm. We've decided that. Let's put them together and see what happens because the worst that happens is they don't succeed. And the best that happens is they fill a void immediately. That's just waiting to be filled. And why not us? All right. So Allie Brooke, Dinah Jane, Camila Cabello, Normani Corday, Lauren Yuregi, I think is the way to say it. Do I have that right? I think that's right. Yes. Who are they each? Just very briefly, who are these five women? Where do they come from? And is there anything about any of their early lives that help us understand this group as it comes to be? So... All five members of Fifth Harmony came to X Factor with minimal professional experience. I would say creative passions, but minimal professional experience. And by all accounts, most, if not all of them, came to the group from lower class, middle class families. They didn't really come from a place of Nepo baby privilege. They liked to tell those stories on the X Factor. I think it was important to sort of understanding the reasons why it felt like they all had, even if they didn't know each other beforehand, similar worldviews, similar outlooks on life. They came from similar places. I mean, Camila grew up in Cuba before immigrating to Miami. I remember the story that she told at the time on X Factor and repeatedly afterwards was that her mom told her at age six that they were going to Disney World and instead <laughs> they were immigrating to the United States where she ended up in Miami. Oh, wow. So she was close. She was a few hours away from Disney World, but not <laughs> quite. What a trick. <laughs> the rest of them, similar. You know, they all grew up in pretty humble circumstances. Some of them had more experience than others. If you look back on it, Normani comes to this as a dancer. She had taken years of dance lessons. I think that absolutely shines through in everything that Normani does and in the way that the group wielded her as that dance weapon from the very beginning. You have someone like Lauren who joined the group as a singer, as a songwriter, as someone who knew how to play an instrument, so had maybe a little bit better understanding of what went into the creation of a song, even if she didn't have the professional background. And then you had a few who were just sort of raw talent. I know Dinah Jane is Tongan, and she comes from a very big family, and her story at the time was that she grew up in this house with, I think it was like 20, 30 family members, and it was a cramped house, and they all sang together. So they all come from very interesting, lightly musical backgrounds, but no one felt like they were pushed in front of this as a Nepo baby or like it was a sure thing. All of them felt like long shots. And I think that also reflects itself in the way that each one of them individually was rejected as a solo artist on X Factor. Right. Let's talk about X Factor. What is X Factor? So if we're going to take a step back, obviously this group comes together on this show X Factor that began in the UK, came over to the United States. This is Simon Cowell, the sort of grandmaster of reality singing competitions. What is the X Factor about? What were they looking for? What is the ethos of this show? So as you said, X Factor is a Simon Cowell star maker, and it was for a number of years. It started in the UK. It came to America in, I think, 2011. It was very clearly designed and marketed in America as an alternative to American Idol. It was very clearly, we know you miss Simon. We know you miss Paula. We know you miss successful alum of the show. Come to X Factor. We have a proven track record in the UK of turning out stars. We can do it here too. They obviously had successful, whether it was winners or runners up in the UK, people like Leona Lewis was a winner. Little Mix, Cher Lloyd, One Direction, Alexandra Burke, 
They also had, I would call them some of the best judges in reality competition history. Obviously, you get into the voice of it all where they started spending big money on big names. I mean, my beloved judges from X Factor UK as someone who used to just sort of watch it illegally online in the 2000s were people like Mel B, Nicole Scherzinger. That was sort of her post-Pussycat Dolls career. Sharon Osbourne was a judge. Danny Minogue was a judge. Louis Walsh, longtime X Factor judge. Kelly Rowland, anyone that wants to give Kelly Rowland a job and a check, I am there to watch it. (laughs) Cheryl, I am a huge Girls Aloud fan. I'm also a massive Cheryl stan, and Cheryl was obviously a judge on that show as well. So it was a proven star maker and a proven ratings juggernaut in the UK. That is not how it landed in America. Right. For so many different reasons. It came as an alternative, like I said, to American Idol because American Idol was dying at the time. It just wasn't turning out stars the way it used to. The judges panel that everything clicked with had dissipated. So I think Simon was trying to recreate that magic lightning in a bottle feeling and it just didn't work. And yeah, so Fifth Harmony joined in the second season of the show, which is the Khloe Kardashian as co-host, Mario Lopez as co-host, Britney Spears joins the show as a judge that season, Demi Lovato joins as a judge that season, L.A. Reid, formerly head of Epic Records, was a first and second season judge of that show. And Simon was still on the judges panel as well. Last fall, The X Factor rocked America. Now, everything is about to change. Simon and L.A. welcome Demi and Brittany as X Factor judges. What was I thinking? The X Factor, the new season, coming this fall to Fox. Was it a star maker? (laughs) Question mark. We could get into that. So what is the broad strokes trajectory? So they all show up. They're all in search of solo careers. They're all trying to win this themselves. How do we end up with Simon at all putting them together as a group? And then how does the group do on the show? How does the group come together and what makes them special as a unit on the show? So they all come to this looking for solo stardom. They all get shot down as individual artists. Right. They air a couple of their solo auditions. Hi. Hi. What's your name? I'm Dinah Jane. Dinah Jane. Cool. Um, how old are you? I just turned 15. Really? Wow. You look a lot older. That's crazy. I get that a lot. Yeah. And you're 15? Yes. (laughs) Okay, Dinah. I think we should just sing now, don't you? Yes, I think okay. so. <laughs> okay, well, good luck. If I were a boy, even just for a day. But then they bring them back together for the sort of judges' rounds, and these are girls who have never met each other before, they are just met that day. And they pull what they pulled with One Direction, which is a group of young men who also did not succeed in the audition rounds as solo artists. With Fifth Harmony, they are put together by the judges. We don't get a lot of behind the scenes of how they are chosen to be together, but they are put together. The group succeeds on the show. It is audience voted similar to American Idol, but obviously judges get to block and save and all of this reality competition nonsense. So Fifth Harmony, they do covers throughout the show. They grow together. They figure out the placement of voices and who center vocalist is going to be quite literally in the center of the five. Mm-hmm. Since we found out, since we found out, anything could happen, anything could happen, anything could happen, anything could happen, anything could happen. 
So they do well on the show, right? I mean, in thinking about it, what makes them stand out? Like, what is the X factor of this group as they develop on the series? It's interesting. And by the way, we should also talk about the name changes. Right. Because when Simon put them together, they began as Lilas, L-Y-L-A-S, oh, which God. stood for Love You Like a Sister. But I remember a group at the time called The Lilas came out and said, you're stealing our name. Mm -hmm. And The Lilas was composed at least partially of some of Bruno Mars's sisters. So they changed their name to 1432, <laughs> which stood for I Love You Too. But the other judges basically dragged Simon right. after that on the show and said that also sucks. So they had a fan voted competition online, I think it was, and Fifth Harmony was the result. Oh, so the fans picked the name. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. And we'll come back to this, but the fans are the Fifth Harmony. They were the Fifth Harmony all along, which is the spiel they gave on that third record. And I was like, you know what? In some ways, they were right when they said that. Name changes aside, they succeed on the show. They cover your sort of pop song du jour at the time, which are anywhere from Stronger by Kelly Clarkson to We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together by Taylor Swift, which if people have not seen that performance, I do recommend you watch it because they just sort of howl over each other for 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of them finding their <laughs> rhythms and finding exactly their harmonies, if right. you will. Sure. And by the way, I'd argue they get there in the end. They place third in the competition and their final song is Let It Be by the Beatles because when you think of Fifth Harmony, you think the Beatles. I think one of the most interesting things to me about watching these X Factor performances is the best Fifth Harmony songs to me, and I'll be interested what you think about this theory, are proudly garish trash. They revel in tastelessness. They're big, booming, ridiculous, borderline, silly, stupid songs, right? Yes. I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I love these songs. I hope that doesn't come across as negative. It's just that they're proudly ridiculous and bombastic and silly. And it was funny watching so many of these X Factor performances where they're really trying to present them as serious singers who are singing Beatles songs. singing a lot of ballads and it's very jarring as someone who didn't watch them on the season and only knows them as boss and work from home and whatever and all these songs. I was like, oh, this is so wildly different than where the group found their most fruitful energy, which was when they sort of threw off the shackles of respectability and were just kind of proudly silly and stupid and bombastic. That was one thing that just really struck me from the show was they did not, in the process of making the show fully, figure out that part of the whole formula, which feels very important to the whole thing. Completely. And I think the thing that takes the train off the track in a way that I absolutely love to watch about X Factor is that you have never seen five people want it more and five people thirstier to succeed. Yeah. And because of that, they take these songs and just shoot the rockets to space. <laughs> There's no baseline. It is all bombast. It is all in your face. There yeah. is no subtlety. No. It's all just caterwauling and screeching and insane 
quote unquote choreography at the time and the whole thing is a mess but also (laughs) I am someone who loves mess and I think that is why I am drawn to Fifth Harmony in particular. We talked about this at the beginning. They felt like underdogs because they were wearing their hearts so loudly on their sleeves. I just couldn't help but root for them and I would say third is quite admirable for a reality singing competition as a girl group at that time. For sure. I'm interested what you're saying about the energy being aiming to please because what I gathered from watching that was that these are girls that grew up watching American Idol. That was the thing that I kept thinking about in my head is they're performing what they think made Kelly Clarkson successful. I think it was just so interesting watching like a group of performers that grew up watching American Idol doing what they thought was what was needed of them and how much that actually contrasts with what actually made the group click at the end of the day. It is very charming, but yet doesn't feel like they had located the squishy center of what made Fifth Harmony appealing at the end of the day, which was this lightheartedness, this zaniness, this sort of garish quality to their bombastic girl power anthems, I guess. And you don't really see a lot of that on the show. And also because of that, it feels so true to me that they succeeded despite those odds because the people that usually come through these pipelines and succeed are the ones who most of the time know who they are, know what their sound is, know what they're about, know what their artistry is like. I mean, a great example of this is you get someone like Kelly Clarkson, who just sounds the same in the best way possible, no matter what song she's singing. You get someone like Adam Lambert coming in on American Idol and just absolutely decimating songs that should sound, quote unquote, a different way. But Adam absolutely just reinterpreted and frankly ate, just ate that whole season up. And those are the artists who people glom onto because their artistry is pre-baked. It's not like you have to go on the journey with them and help them as they help themselves figure out. Right. what their sound is. So really and truly, the fact that this group churned out hits is shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. And also, I think it can be kind of more difficult sometimes when you're dealing with a group, especially a group that didn't come together organically around shared musical aesthetics to figure out what that's all about. It's not even like Destiny's Child, where you're dealing with a group of women that grew up together and probably had a shared vision for what this was going to be and shared certain inspirations. You're dealing with a group of people that were literally placed together in a very, very quick fashion in a super pressure cooker. And then they have to find some sort of unified musical aesthetic that reflects the strengths of them as individuals and as a unit, that's got to be extremely difficult. It's actually incredibly admirable that they even were able to figure that out, as you were saying, at all. So they come in third on the show. They get a record deal with Simon, essentially. What's the trajectory from the end of the show towards them releasing their debut EP, Better Together, in 2013? So they sign a joint deal with Simon and Epic Records because L.A. Reid, the head of Epic Records at the time, was one of the judges. So it was a joint deal between Psycho and Epic. And it's interesting that you use certain terminology, and I know it's not intentional, but you're talking about them finding their own sound and the fact that they are coming together and figuring out in real time this group of strangers, who they want to be, and what they want to be about and what their messaging is because that is absolutely not the way that it happens in the grand scheme of things. I was being as generous as I possibly can to this young group of women. (laughs) No, but it's interesting because I think it helps us dig in and dissect exactly what went wrong with the EP, (laughs) which was a collection of songs. It's the first original material that they have done. Obviously, these shows traffic in covers. That is what they do. We all know this. So this is the first original original material that they are working on together. Listeners at home, I am making big, gigantic double quotes (laughs) because... 
My understanding of how it all went is that I'm sure as the season went on, someone somewhere was saying, this group is going to get signed at some point. Let's start putting songs together for them, pitching them songs. And they quickly get together a body of work anchored by the single Miss Moving On. But most of it is watered down <laughs> platitudes and girl power thoughts and loose, 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 loose feminism. Songs that don't step on any toes. Yeah. Songs that are completely inoffensive. I was prepping for this episode and going back and listening to the EP. The EP is not in steady rotation for me to this day, no. believe it or not. <laughs> and I was listening to it and I was like, damn, I feel like I'm at a Claire's in 2013. I feel like I'm in a mall at a Delia's about to get my ears pierced. The music doesn't matter. It's all just blending together to me. So again, I say the fact that they were able to springboard from that into a successful career is also shocking because they didn't really have a ton of indication during that EP era that they knew what their sound was, that they knew how to work together, that they knew exactly where their voices all slotted in well, that they knew what their messaging was, that they knew what set them apart from anybody else. It's shocking that they were able to make it beyond that and not get dropped. I've got three things I want to say slash ask you about. One is to affirm you in terms of your thoughts on this EP. I mean, I could not get over the sheer genericism of this music. If you were going to come up with these sort of mid-tier song factory songs that were probably passed on by bigger pop stars and are just very, very anonymous. The word I wrote here is chaste or lacking in personality. They're tasteful in a way that is not befitting of what makes this group work. Miss Moving On, obviously the best song here, but I wrote here, very Ryan Tedder core. These are just big, <laughs> faceless, generic, mid-tempo ballad of empowerment. It's interesting because Fifth Harmony's music does contain a lot of great female empowerment messages in it, in the better music that they come up with later. But this version of it, I can imagine hearing this and being like, this group is going absolutely nowhere. This prefab group from this reality show is making music that has absolutely no personality to it. And what are we expecting from this? This feels like a road to absolutely nowhere. That was the vibe that I got listening to the music. My two questions for you are, what is the strength of each of these women? I mean, you were talking a little bit about mm. Normani's the dancer. They were centering potentially Lauren as a vocalist. Camilla's got some star power. Are there individual things about them that we can see here or maybe that we haven't seen here yet amongst the five women? Like what are each of their roles in the greater whole or how are they starting to figure that out, do you think? They all have very distinctive styles of singing. Their voices sound very different, yeah. but they each bring something, I would say, singular to the table. I don't mean singular necessarily in the greater pop pantheon. I just mean in this group, right. it falls under the weight of if one of them is missing. And again, we'll talk about that with that third album with the self-titled, yes. because you can tell a piece of the puzzle is missing. Sure. So obviously, first and foremost, let's talk about Camila. She has a strong, singular, nasally, and I don't mean that in a bad way, voice. You know Camila's voice. It is distinctive.
absolutely rub certain people the wrong way. But the way that I was thinking about it was, even if you're not familiar with Fifth Harmony, if you hear Camilla singing, I feel like you can tell that that is her. For better or worse. For better or worse. Lauren, I think, brings a really nice depth of tone to the group. I'm sure she is sick of hearing this, but she has a husky voice. It's just true. Mm -hmm. It's a little raspy. It's very soulful. Mm -hmm. It feels world-worn, like she's lived a life. Monday, you sent me flowers. Tuesday, made me feel stupid. Wednesday, the world was off. Thursday, you didn't prove it. I think part of that is because of the way that she grew up with instruments in her life. There's some singer-songwritery stuff there. I think it all works together as a package. Mm -hmm. Normani, I think, has a gorgeous voice. I think she is the dancer of the group, and I mean absolutely no offense of that. I just think she is stunning. She has personality for days. She can coordinate and communicate the message of a song through her body in a way that none of the other girls can. Right. She is magnetic to watch, and she has a lovely voice to go along with it. And then you have Allie Brooke and Dinah Jane, who I think have sort of similar voices that work quite well in tandem. They're a bit higher of the group. Other than Camila, they are the belters. They can hit those high notes, and they can sustain those high notes. However, they all complement each other when the song is right, when the melody is right, and when the arrangement is right, when the producers have figured it all out. And I think there are great examples of this in their career. They work perfectly together. Sometimes it feels like a competition. Other times it feels like the sum of parts. In the sense that it's a competition, the last thing I want to ask you before we get on to the moment where the group, I feel like, clicks together. How do they feel about being in this group? I mean, they've been put together here. They all came to be solo artists are they into this to the extent that we know? Are some of them more invested in the idea of the group than others? Is the sisterly camaraderie real or is it manufactured? What's your vibe on all of that in this early period? I think there are two answers here. I think there is the answer at the time and I think there is the answer afterwards. Right. The answer at the time is we hang out all the time. We're on tour together. We're in the studio together. Yeah. We live together. Right. I can't believe we found each other. We're so lucky to be together. <laughs> this journey is magical and it's everything we ever dreamed of. And I wouldn't want to experience it with anybody else. And I think 50% of that is bullshit. Right. I think 50% of that is media training and just a general newness to stardom and to Hollywood and to the music industry. And then I would say 50% of it is probably, yeah, adrenaline, serotonin, the thrill of a lifetime. I think most of these young women probably didn't think that they would have a career in music, right. especially one that skyrocketed them to national attention, if not immediate fame. So I think there is probably some genuineness and some authenticity to what they were saying at the time. Right. So they have this debut AP, Better Together. Miss Moving On is the single. It doesn't perform particularly well. It peaks at number 76 on the Hot 100. And they very very quickly pivot out of this, as I said, Ryan Tedderkor, down the middle, anonymous, faceless pop. And I feel like the moment where Fifth Harmony, as we know them as a group or as a group with a musical identity, emerges on the lead single from their debut album, Reflection, which is this song, Boss, which is, I can only describe it as a post- lip gloss celebration of <laughs> girl power ethos. The song is essentially, I feel like, updating the ideas of independent woman for this particular group's garish, zany sensibility or something like that.
Do you agree with me that this is the moment where what Fifth Harmony is begins to gel? Completely, completely. I think Boss is the thesis statement for Fifth Harmony as a group. I think it's the thesis statement for Reflection, which is the album that appears on their debut album. I think it is the culmination of the pieces of Fifth Harmony that had worked up until that point. Right. It was like they distilled all of the things that worked into one song. They got rid of the schlock. They got rid of the sugary, sweet candy vibe. They got rid of the generalities and platitudes, and they focused in on Boss. <laughs> Boss has aged so interestingly to me. I still think it is a banger. I do. It goes kind of off. But then think about the references on it. There's a Nene reference on it immediately. Every day is payday. Swipe my card, then I do the Nene. It's one of those pitfalls where it's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that whenever someone wants to make a current pop culture reference in a song yeah. because it immediately outdates itself immediately. No, but that's their thing. As I listen to this music, <laughs> dating themselves and being totally of this particular moment and whatever the opposite of timelessness is, that's Fifth Harmony's aesthetic. Like, it is completely timely. A hundred thousand percent. I love this fucking song, though. I just want to make sure you know that. Like, I live for this song. Oh, this is the example of what you were talking about earlier, which is just falls to the walls, falls. Yeah. Crazy, insane. Right. With the covers that they were doing on X Factor. When I say that they went straight for the moon, they shouldn't have. It was too far. They didn't need a rocket ship. They just needed to get on an airplane. Right. With this music, I'm like, yes, take me in the rocket ship to space. This is wild. The not taking themselves too seriously aspect of it, I think helps situate them in what I was talking about earlier, which is sort of the proud teenager of the whole identity. Because this song is silly. The chorus is literally Boss, Michelle Obama, Perso Heavy, getting Oprah dollars, but they sell it so wholeheartedly. It's so funny because I would sort of dismiss the early music as overly earnest, but this is earnest in a way that's appealing. You really get a sense of how much fun and how much joy is in this music. They are really having a good time celebrating this post-Beyonce idea of pop feminism being about gender equity rooted in making money on your own. It's so ebullient and lovable. And I think that the timeliness of it only adds to its charm to me. Not only is it timely, like it's so 2014, but it's also dated even in its sound when it comes out. And that adds to the profound silliness of it, I guess. And that's part of what I love about this song. And I'm going to be completely contradictory to myself and say that at the same time that I found it immediately out of date. I also found it to be a little bit ahead of its time looking back on it. And I don't mean lyrically ahead of its time. I mean, in the way that we had Whip Nene and Soldier Boy teaching people how to do dances with a song. Yeah. It's a very similar thing where they are reaching a new young audience, teaching them how to do dances along the way, giving them Instagram captions along the way or Snapchat messages in the way that our generation had AIM away messages. Yes, you are catering to new audience here. You're being very smart and a little bit ahead of your time in the way that you are infiltrating these young minds. And also just making bombastic, exciting pop. The thing about Fifth Harmony is until the third album, they are exciting with the things that they do. They make pop that even if it isn't groundbreaking yeah. or even if it isn't ahead of its time, right. it is always a thrill to listen to a Fifth Harmony song. It is genuinely feels empowering too. There is something that's speaking very directly. I would be happy 
happy for my young daughter to listen to this song. You know what I mean? It's wholesome without feeling edgeless, which is a really nice aspect mm. of it. And the other thing that I was going to say that feels like a really relevant revelation here with this song is that it's very explicitly hip hop and R&B oriented, whereas a lot of the earlier music felt whitewashed in a certain sense or had a sort of erasure of that vibe. You're dealing with five women of color. There's something about the embrace of hip hop and R&B aesthetics here that feels like an important revelation. All great Fifth Harmony songs seem like they're at least somewhat dabbling in that space. Completely. And I also think that's because they are being surrounded by the right people at the right time, the producers, the songwriters. And it's interesting because even if you go back to the EP, and I don't think we need to spend any more time on the EP, <laughs> but they're starting to work with people who become benchmarks for the rest of their career. You get people working with them like Harmony Samuels, Monsters and the Strangers are in that EP. Jason Evigan is on that EP. Julia Michaels in a very early career appearance is a co-writer on that EP. Jack Antonoff is on one of these songs, right? He sure is. And then, yeah, with Reflection and with Boss, you start them working in sort of a DJ Mustard core yes, sound. Yeah. Like DJ Mustard without the sauce. Like, he's not there, <laughs> yeah. but he's always with us. Some of these songs, part of the fun of them is their Frankenstein-y qualities. You've got Boss. Boss is a minor breakthrough for them. I think it hits number 43 or something like that on the charts. Yeah, 43. Wow. And you've got the rest of this record, which is a fascinating melange of popular music sounds of this time period in the most enjoyable way because it's not trying to be anything else other than that. Yes. It really allows you to relish in that. So you've got the DJ Mustard Core thing, which happens on what's really the biggest hit of this record, which is the song Worth It, which feels like a stitched together version of numerous other pop songs that are happening at that moment. You've got Jason Derulo's talk dirty saxophone riff going on. You've got the verses, which feel extremely DJ Mustard. You've got Middle Eastern-y strings of like a buttons or something like that going on. Give it to me, I'm worth it. So it does feel like this Frankenstein's monster thing, but they are having so much fun. And I think Worth It is another great example of a song that's so self-awarely ridiculous and silly and not trying to be anything high-minded. And that's where they find the sweet spot. It is so ridiculous that you can't help but smile and get into that feeling with them. What else is happening on this record that you feel like is of note? How does this group present itself and how do they find the Fifth Harmony ethos, not even just musically, but in terms of what they have to say to young women and to their fans? Well, I think they have something actually of substance to say for the first time. The EP, as you said, is all generalities. It's all sugary and watered down, anything that anyone could sing. And I'm not saying that other people couldn't step in and sing these songs. They could. This is ultimately an album by committee that somehow works as a cohesive album. It doesn't always happen this way because every song is a different team of songwriters and producers for the most part, and yet it all feels of a kind. And I think that's because of the energy that these women are putting into these songs, the vocals that they're putting into these songs, and the general messaging that their label has decided is now Fifth Harmony Core. This is the album where they first start leaning into chaste sex. <laughs> I think a really good example of that is Camilla's verse on Worth It, which I think about all the time, where she says, I like it a little rough, not too much, but maybe just <laughs> enough. So it is quite literally towing the line of 
I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm good enough for you to listen to on the radio and your mom to buy my CD, but also I'm a little bad. It's this interesting push and pull between we are young women, we are sexual beings, but also we are safe enough to be a part of your young daughters and gay sons' lives (laughs) is sort of the sweet spot. I think that's really interesting. And I think that there's definitely a lot of conversation between this record and some of the early Ariana Grande stuff top down really reminds reminds me of that sexy kind of Ariana problem-y kind of vibe. And then you have the presence of present and future collaborators of Ariana's Victoria Monet and Tommy Brown produced one of the songs here that really reminded me a lot of the work that would go on to kind of define the sound of Ariana's work. That song Everlasting Love is the one I'm thinking of. I love Everlasting Love. Okay, so we've been thinking about how they're not particularly forward-looking. This isn't innovative. It's kind of proudly of the moment. It's maybe backwards-looking or whatever. But I actually was thinking one of the major players on this record is Megan Trainer. Yes. Megan Trainer is here. She produces an absolute heat rock, which is the second single, Sledgehammer. What a great song. Just pure pop joy, huge emotion. The way the bridge slows down into a trickle and then they explode back on that final chorus. What joy. One of my favorite pop songs of this era. And the fact that it sounds like some of the synths were taken directly from an M83 song. Yes, 100%. And yet also feels like Demi Lovato's heart attack at the same time. Yes, completely. (laughs) The absolute insanity of that song and the way that all of these disparate influences come together. Yeah. Yeah, this was Megan Trainer on the cusp of her Slay era. And yeah. you get her again on the album on Brave Honest Beautiful, which right. samples Bootylicious, which is so crazy to think about because if you're looking through the credits of this album, technically Beyonce and Kelly Rowland are credited songwriters on a Fifth Harmony song because of that sample. This group loves making reference to other divas. The chorus of Brave, Honest, Beautiful is, you could dance like Beyonce, you could shake like Shakira, you're fearless, you whine like Rihanna. And then they have an entire song also that's literally called Like Mariah that samples <laughs> Always Be My Baby. <laughs> So again, I think that adds to the feeling that you were getting about why you like them, which is they feel like scrappy underdogs. They're as fangirly as you are. They're as thrilled to be here. They're looking up to the same people that you are. They're not presenting themselves as peers to these people. They're presenting themselves as, we're just a group of girls that also looks up to Mariah and Beyonce and Shakira. That's such a charming aspect of this. But what I was going to say is though, there's slight tones here. This goes into my grander theory, which some find controversial, but I'll say it anyway, which is that Megan Trainor's All About That Bass is the entire 
entire basis for Lizzo's career. This sort of anodyne throwback music that's obsessed with self-empowerment in this very particular way, especially when it comes to body positivity, right? That song softened the ground for the entire sound of what Lizzo's ethos of POV is and thus what a lot of pop music is like these days. And I feel sprinkles of that here. So we're going to point out one prescient forward-looking thing is there is this version of self-love, self-empowerment music on this that feels singular to the era that's about to transpire in the mid to late 2010s. That's this particular Lizzo-ish brand of self-love that has come to define the current era of pop. I was feeling tinges of that here that I will chalk up to my girl, Megan Trainer, who I do feel was on the cusp of that particular POV in pop. And you get it on songs that sound like all about that based on the record, and you even get it in songs that don't sound like it. You get it on a song like Going Nowhere, for instance. Right. It's this idea of there is no breakout star of the group yet, and it is truly an introduction to the group, and because of that, the messaging that you're talking about translates and succeeds extremely well. Right. Because you're not yet getting the infighting, you're not yet getting the stratification of the group members. So for this one perfect bottled moment, you are getting an album where the messaging actually correlates to what the public persona and perception of this group yes. is. And it's interesting too because, and I wanted to bring this up, one of the people involved in this album and one of the people involved in Boss particularly is Ricky Reed, right. who was also involved in Talk Dirty at the time, which is sort of why you're getting that crossover horn sound. Mm -hmm. And Ricky also involved in Megan Trainor's career. And Ricky also very involved in Lizzo's career today. And Ricky is one of the truly nicest people in Hollywood. I, at the time of Fifth Harmony and at the time of Megan, and he was working, I think, with 21 Pilots at the time and a few other folks. I was working for Spin Magazine and I got the chance to go out to LA and spend a half a day at his house studio with him because I was like, I have a feeling that Ricky is really about to blow up. Yeah. And lo and behold, on stage the Grammys with Lizzo, snagging awards. And it's funny, I was prepping for this conversation and I went back and I found my transcript from that interview. And I asked him specifically at the time about Fifth Harmony because I was a stan and I was going to get that question in whether it was going to make it into the story or not. And he had a really interesting perspective on how the group was making their music at the time. So from the mouth of someone on the ground, I'm sure as no surprise to anyone, they were not coming in with their own ideas. They were coming in and recording stuff as given to them. This changes and we will talk about that as we get into the next album and the third album. But this is still prefab songs for a prefab girl group. And what I specifically asked, because I was interested in the dynamics of the equality of the vocal parts and the distribution of the vocal parts. So that's what I asked him about. Mm. And he said to me at the time that what happened is they would come in and they would have each girl sing the entire song as many times as it needed. Oh, interesting. And then they would put it together from there. Oh, wow. They did not decide ahead of time Camilla gets this bit, Normani gets this bit, Dinah Jane gets this chorus. My understanding, at least with Boss, and it may have been different for the other songs, though I imagine if they had a formula that worked, that Epic was probably doing it with each session that they were putting these women in. That they came in, individually tracked the song, and then later, A&R, producers, Frankenstein. So this goes back to what you're saying about that Frankenstein quality, <laughs> not only sonically, right. but quite literally yeah. piecing together, okay, we think she sounds strongest here. We think she sounds strongest here. We haven't given this person nearly enough. That is such a fascinating way to record the songs. I want to hear everyone's individual versions of them all. Leak the tapes. Let's hear them. Leak 
the tapes. When we get next year to the 10 year anniversary of Reflection, let's get each individual's album. We can have a five disc set. I'm ready for that. Put them on vinyl. I will purchase the whole box set. I don't care how much you charge me. I will purchase the box set. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Doswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Pantheon on positions and so much more plus you get access to our discord channel the guest list at my party gorgeous gorgeous and a ton of other great perks so sign up today at patreon.com slash pop pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode i gotta tell you brennan i love this album i hadn't listened to it since it first came out what an enjoyable album that is better than it had any fucking right to be this album for all of its prefabness for all of the ways that maybe they didn't have a huge hand in even the creation of these songs so much personality so much fun every song's a banger not a ballad in sight thank god it's a very very good album this album was the great surprise of this prep for this episode for me i was like this album rocks and it's cohesive yes that is truly the wildest part to me is I have never stopped listening to this album. There was never a point in my life where I let it go, but revisiting it and thinking very deeply about it. So many times pop by committee can feel so disparate where it's like, okay, now you're doing the 80s sounding song and now you're doing a ballad and now you're doing your specific girl power Grammys core song. And this one, a whole team of people, completely different rooms at different times, recorded all over the world. And somehow they released a banger of an album, no skips, that all makes sense together. A hundred percent. It's really impressive. I have to tell you, I will be listening to this album more (laughs) in my life. It's the best time. It's just silly, stupid, but also weirdly touching and empowering. And there's wholesomeness to this. I would be so happy to have a 12-year-old girl and put this record on for her. It would be something I'd be proud and happy for her to be into, which is more than you can say for a lot of pop music, I guess. And they're not even the greatest performers. The choreography isn't always completely in sync. That scrappiness that you were saying is the charm for you about them is really evident through the whole thing, but actually just makes it more interesting. They're winning because it is kind of a bit of a hot mess. Their outfits kind of are hot messes. The choreography is not perfect. Sometimes they sound like they're trying to outsing each other, whatever it is, but it adds to the homespun charm, which I think you nailed at the beginning of the conversation. In this era, there's always one thing slightly off in everything that they do. And it was such a delight re-watching all the old music videos for this era Mm -hmm. because I was watching the Sledgehammer video. And by the way, Sledgehammer is my favorite song from this record. You said it, I need to just put my stamp on it as well. It is just an absolute wallop of a song. But in that video, are cutting to each individual girl and then they cut to Camilla and I was like, what is Jenny Slate doing in this video? And it's because (laughs) she has her hair all like done up big and curly. And I just was like, oh, that's right because they didn't know how to style them yet. Oh my God, that's so, (laughs) yet being maybe the operative <laughs> missed over there. So the interesting part about this is, is Boss went to number 43, Sledgehammer hit number 40, and Worth It, the biggest hit from this record, only hits number 12. It's not like they're so huge. Clearly they're breakouts. They've emerged beyond their X Factor fame. They're now actual pop stars. And yet I never felt in this era Fifth Harmony was like taking over the world. They always felt a little bit tangential in a sense. Do you think that that's a fair characterization? 
I do. I think if you knew who they were, they felt everywhere all at once. Yeah. But if you weren't paying attention, if you weren't clicked into pop music, if you were yeah. honestly outside of a certain age range or frankly sexuality, yeah. I think you had no idea who they are. No. And you might know Worth It and you might know Work From Home. Right. And that's sort of it. And they did some really interesting work to further the brand. And I would argue that someone on their team was thinking about playing the long game. And obviously that did not work out in the long run. You have them performing with Taylor Swift at the 1989 tour. Worth it gets its moment in front of 30,000 fans at a stadium. Right. I think I should say, again, this is, this is not my outfit. I borrowed it from a friend. And my friend is in one of the biggest and most successful groups in the world. You get them doing red carpets and VMAs and they're on the jingle ball circuit. They really are getting out there, but I'm with you that if you are not training your eyes on them, they will pass you by. Right. And also, if you're just hearing Worth It, it's not generic in the sense that it's incredibly filled with personality, but that could blend into the sound of radio in a way that you could just passively hear that and have absolutely no idea who Fifth Harmony was and never even asked the question in a way. 100% agreed. So they get back into the studio to create this second record and the lead single from it becomes their biggest hit and their signature song and the one that I think they will go down in history. <laughs> oh my God, Brennan's holding up his work from home final. <laughs> That's a collector's item. You take that all the way to the bank. <laughs> so let's talk about work from home. Why do you think this song ends up being the ultimate and most successful and culturally saturating expression of the Fifth Harmony thing? What's happening here that brings the whole project together on a new level? I will tell you a personal story that I think actually might help. So I, at the time, was invited with a room full of other journalists to Epic Records in New York City to hear, I think it was both Megan Trainer and Fifth Harmony stuff. I think it was a spring showcase situation. They weren't there. It was just a conference room with some journalists and some food and some drinks, some A&Rs, some publicists, a screen and some great speakers. Yeah. They were like, first, we're going to play the Megan Trainer, And I think they played us No and Me Too. And we're like, then we're going to play Fifth Harmony. And my now fiance, then boyfriend is also a music journalist. So he was with me at the time. And I remember they played the opening note of Work From Home, that first icy synth. And I gasped so loudly that people in the conference room turned and looked at me. And Nolan was like, you're grabbing my arm really hard right now. <laughs> because I just knew immediately that this song was something big. Yeah. It just felt massive. From the first note of the song, it feels like, look what we can do. Look at how expensive this can sound. Mm -hmm. Look at how luxe we are. Look at how we are elevating the sound. Again, in the way that reflection felt like a distillation of the stuff that had worked up until that point, this felt like an even further distillation of great. What really landed with the reflection era? Got it. Repackaged. Make it 
sexier. We are moving on from the towing the line and we are walking directly into Sextown USA. Mm-hmm. These women are young sexual beings and they're going to sing about it now. And it's interesting. I was listening to the Casey Musgraves episode that you did with Bobby yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And the way that the two of you were talking about how Casey can sort of get away with singing about these sort of homespun, simple metaphors and things like that on her early records. It's a different feeling, but I feel like no one else could have gotten away at this time with talking about sex as work from home, except for this group. And it goes back to what you said at the beginning, which has rung true with me and I've been thinking about it this whole time. They were young. They were teenagers. They were singing true to their experience. They grew up in the limelight, but they were growing up together. There was like a sisterhood. They were unafraid. It was just the right combination of the right ingredients at the right time. Think about someone else putting this song out. It would have been like, a little cringy, a little corny. It would have felt inauthentic. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the contrast that makes this song work and makes it singular to them. Is Yes, the production is sleekly perfect. DJ Mustard compressed 3,000 times, whatever. And it is slinkier and it is sexier and it is all of the things that you're saying. But at the same time, it's also so profoundly silly in this really funny way. The fact that they settle on a chorus that is literally just repeating the word work, 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 work. I mean, that is so funny. I find myself laughing with them, not at them. They don't take themselves too seriously and they're proud to be garish. Yeah, we're going to hammer this fucking word, no pun intended, into your head because that's how we're going to make this chorus sing. There's something so charming to me about that, about Fifth Harmony songs. They're garish in their lack of restraint. They're just like, no, we are drilling these into your head. It's very obvious what these are as obvious pop songs. There's nothing poetic about this. This is just what it is. And that is very, very charming to me. And this song is so funny. I mean, the whole concept of we can work from home as a sex metaphor is just so silly and invented the coronavirus pandemic. (laughs) These are five women, by the way, five women who do not know the definition of the word subtle. And refuse to look it up in a dictionary. You turn to that page and it has been ripped out and burned. That is what makes Work From Home such a success story to me. Yeah, exactly. The way that they just lean into the silliness of it all. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they could ever properly articulate to you or I that they are in on the joke. I just don't think that they could use that language to say to you and I, they get it. I don't think that that would resonate with them. But because they are who they are, they're the age that they are, we know what they're about right. and who they are and what they're bringing to the table. And by the way, what they are not bringing to the table. Right. So if they had started the second album era with a ballad, yeah, God. you know what I mean? I think people would have been like, all right, flop era, yeah. confirmed. This yes. is it here, folks. But the fact that they were like, we know you liked Worth It. We know yeah. you liked Sledgehammer. We know you liked Boss. Here's that ramped up times 100,000 yeah. and <laughs> stupider. Yeah, so stupid. <laughs> Let's put it in motion. I'll make it feel like a vacation, turn the bed into an ocean. 
This is the song of fifth harmonies that will live on in infamy. When we remember this yes. group, if you're not a harmonizer, if you're not part of the deeper fan community, this is the song that will live on from fifth harmony forever. It's great. It's funny. It's silly. It's sexy. It sounds so of its moment. It takes you right back to that time. It's just a great song. So what about the rest of 727, their second album, which comes out in 2016, for which Work From Home is the lead single? How do they expand the fifth harmony sound and are they successful in doing that is the question that I want to ask you when you listen to this record. So 727, I would say, splits the difference between what you would expect from them sonically and lyrically after the Reflection era. Yeah. I'd say half the songs on here feel like just natural evolutions, next steps, retreads, however you want to put it from the first album. So I'd say like 50% of this record felt of a kind with Reflection. But then they do some sort of crazy stuff on the other half of the record. And some of that is sounds du jour. And I would argue the number one version of that is Trop House. Yes. They lean very heavily on Trop House. Someone listened to Purpose. (laughs) Somebody listened to Purpose. Absolutely true. But then they do some other interesting stuff on here as well. So obviously you get the Trap House stuff. Kygo is a presence on this album, which would come as no surprise. He is one of the producers on Right On Me, which I actually found, as I listened to this, held up better than I expected. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it holds up beautifully, but it held up better than I expected. Maybe the first Fifth Harmony song one could characterize as laid back. (laughs) Yes. And also they had blown their music video budget at that point. So the Right On Me video is just them in black and white in a circle, quite literally writing on their own arms. Because let's be honest, they're doing well, but they're not doing that well. They're getting a budget, but they're not getting the highest budget at the label. They spent their music video budget on Sam Asghari for the Work From Home music video, (laughs) the construction site and permits, and they also spent it on the GI helicopters for the That's My Girl music video, where they all quite literally go to war. Honestly, That's My Girl is potentially their other greatest song. What a fucking banger. And that's another song that stands in the great tradition of just with harmony sound completely au courant for their time period or do they sound like 2003? Because the thing that That's My Girl reminds me of more than anything else is Jennifer Lopez's Get Right. Yes, it's that Balkan sax sound that really is it and that thudding, thudding, thudding drum. I just love it. Also, their ongoing obsession with Beyonce and calling her out is Destiny said it. You got to get mad independent and don't you ever forget it. If you're feeling me, put your fives high. Let's go. Trying to make that a thing. That wasn't a thing. But man, this song goes all the way off. I love, love, love this. Pure bombast. Love this song. You will not be shocked to hear that this was the song and music video the record label played for us immediately after they played Work From Home. Oh, yeah. It was Work From Home and then That's My Girl. Written by Tinashe. 
the queen herself, we should say. The other song that I wanted to talk about from this era is Not That Kind of Girl. So good. Not That Kind of Girl is so good. Mm -hmm. It is so good. I don't even know if I have the words to describe how profoundly weird and unexpected of a song from Fifth Harmony that is. Yes. It sounds like a Prince knockoff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's crazy to think that Prince and Fifth Harmony would ever be in the same conversation. Yes. You're completely right. It's a total Prince homage. And then it also features someone who loves to big up a girl group, Missy Elliott, who just this week once again lent her cred to flow on a song that definitely could have been a Fifth Harmony song. I keep thinking about every time I listen to Fly Girl, I'm like, this easily could have been a Fifth Harmony song. Absolutely. Even in the way that it's referential to another artist's song, that feels very signature Fifth Harmony. But I agree. That's one of the best Fifth Harmony songs. But I kind of feel like Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't love this album as much as I love Reflection. The highs are great. That's my girl into work from home. One, two punch. One of the best. Love that. Love not that kind of girl. I even love all in my head, the Fetty Wap featuring second single. That's kind of like a reggae song. that sounds like a Rihanna cast off. Love those songs, but then honestly, I can't get with a lot of these Trap House. This is where the leaning into the sounds of the moment thing that they do effectively on some other parts of their discography just doesn't work for me because that's not what I like in my Fifth Harmony songs. I don't want them to be mature. I don't want them to be tasteful in any sort of way. I don't want them to be background at the pool at the Soho Grand or whatever. I want them to be garish, blaring in my face, ridiculous. And half of this record to me is a little bit too... I don't care about this music. It has some of their highest highs, but then to me as an album, I don't care for this as much. I would say nine out of 10 times, I want every song that they release or released to feel like it could be distilled into a six song jingle ball set. (laughs) What I need from Fifth Harmony is exactly what I get on That's My Girl and Boss and Work From Home and Worth It. That's what I want from them. Some girl groups lend themselves to maturity. TLC is a great example of a group that was able to move into really sophisticated, complex lyrics and themes and sultriness. And that really worked for them in particular. But for this particular group, I don't really want any of that necessarily from them. Maybe in their solo careers, it would be different, but there's something about the ethos of this group just revels in garishness. When they lack that for me, the songs start to feel generic and I don't care for them as much. So this is the last project in which Camilla appears on. Girl groups and boy bands are infamously short-lived. Very hard to keep five people who start as teenagers on the same page for very long. What happens to this group after 727? Why does Camilla jump ship at this point? So I think you need to rewind just a little bit to understand how we get to Camilla leaving Fifth Harmony. Let's do it. Camilla always had ambition outside of Fifth Harmony, or at least was the one of the group who outwardly expressed that ambition. I think all of them going into X Factor wanted to be solo artists. I don't think that just goes away. Yes. I don't think you can just squash that. However, I think some of them put it aside publicly for the sake of their careers, the band, longevity, springboarding into whatever would come next, etc. Camilla for better or worse, did not do that basically from the jump. And I Mm. think the clearest first example of that is 
I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was her duet that she did with Shawn Mendes. The picture's on her phone. She's not coming home. Coming home, coming home. I know what you did last summer. That is where the fissures start in Fifth Harmony. Mm. She starts hanging out solo with Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about all five of them performing Worth It with her. She's in the squad at the time. Not all five of them. She puts out a Shawn Mendes song. She puts out a song with Machine Gun Kelly that at least in America does medium well on radio. And even if it's a bad song, <laughs> it does start establishing her name outside of the group. Right. People know her as opposed to, I don't think they could pick at that point the other four out of a lineup. I remember so clearly seeing Camila show up at some sessions at Diplo's house, oh. and it was very publicly advertised on all of their social media. So it was like Camila and Benny Blanco and Diplo. Oh, interesting. Cashmere Cat was part of those sessions as well. I just remember thinking, uh-oh. Right. <laughs> because we had seen this before when time and time again, someone from a group goes solo. It's not until December 2016 that the split becomes official, though I would argue that not only are you seeing that writing on the wall in what Camila is publicly doing on her own, but you are also starting to see a divide of four and one in their public appearances. Mm. That's everything from Fifth Harmony posting a photo of themselves in the studio on their official account without Camila in the photo. Them doing your standard radio morning show performances. There's a very clear example of Allie Brooks glaring at Camila and sort of grabbing her arm and signaling to sort of quiet her vocals down because mm -hmm. she's overwhelming the rest of their voices. I also remember as clear as day that on the 727 tour, they were somewhere maybe in the Midwest and Camilla left the concert halfway through. Wow. Oh, that's fucked up. They in the moment were like, oh no, she had a wardrobe malfunction. We're so sorry. And I remember afterwards, she said she had overwhelming anxiety and couldn't rejoin the rest of the show. That's when I knew because when Jerry left the Spice Girls, it was get well soon, Jerry. Right. I remember that as clear as day. So if we fast forward, we are in December 2016. 727 has been out in the world for a while. Work from home is a success for them. They have just finished the last show on their Jingle Ball circuit. Dueling statements come out within hours of each other. The Fifth Harmony account comes first. Theirs is one of the harshest PR statements I have read. It's not measured. It's not rounded out. It's edged and sharp and pointed. Right. And it is directed at Camila and her manager. I don't know if he's still her manager, but it was Roger Gold at the time. Uh -huh. And it was, we have been informed by Camila's management that she is no longer a part of Fifth Harmony. We have been trying to engage in conversation with her for months. This comes as a blow and a surprise to us. The harmonizers are our number one priority, et cetera, et cetera. Platitudes, platitudes. Mm -hmm. We wish her all the best. Mm -hmm. Within hours, Camila has her own statement up saying, actually, Ellen, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember sitting on my phone, refreshing my feed, waiting for that statement to come out. And she says, actually, I've been trying to engage a conversation with Fifth Harmony for months about how I wanted to do solo stuff in addition to Fifth Harmony. I have done some solo stuff. They didn't like it. They have essentially iced me out. They refused to meet with me or engage in meaningful conversation with me. So when they posted their statement, it was a surprise to me because I planned to do solo and Fifth Harmony concurrently. Mm. I think the general understanding of her statement is that she thought she could continue doing what she was doing. A solo song here, maybe even a solo record, an EP, 
during the downtime for Fifth Harmony. I think she thought she could do both. Right. Or at least that's the narrative she's telling. Within hours, Fifth Harmony is back with another statement <laughs> saying, actually, actually, Ellen, that's not the truth. Because we have records of times that we tried to call you, sit down with you. These are dates. We all went to group therapy together. You decided not to show up to those sessions. You have not returned our calls. It has been frigid with you all year. Da 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 da. We wish you all the best. So it is scorched earth times a million. So how does Camilla's leaving of the group land with the fans? Is there a sense amongst the harmonizers or amongst the pop music consuming public writ large that this spells the end of this group? I mean, some groups have been able to survive members leaving. Some haven't. How does this register with those who care about Fifth Harmony? I think in the way that you mentioned that the early days of Fifth Harmony did not result in one clear-cut lead vocalist, main star. I do think, especially during the 727 era, Camila emerged as the lead vocalist and center of the group. I think a lot of harmonizers would take objection to that because of their favorite members of the group. And I also think without necessarily wading into all of the intra-group dynamics, because I think that gets mucky and complicated, there is very clearly a black and white record of Camila on social media and in DMs to fans using some racist language mm. that she has had to apologize for repeatedly. And I'm sure we'll have to continue apologizing for Normani specifically has spoken about that as she has done solo interviews post Fifth Harmony. So it was clear that Camila was being positioned in a certain way, whether that was of her own doing, the label putting her front and center, a combination of a lot of different forces. But at the same time, there were also some real shortcomings to Camila. And so I think some fans who were group fans and not Camila fans were really excited to see where the group went without her. I think they would argue that there was a level of toxicity with her around, with the group dynamic that would maybe allow them to become unshackled and free and exciting. Right. But I also think... If you and I are talking just on a practical level, Camila did emerge as a center vocalist, as a lead vocalist, as the star of the group. And I don't think that's any of the other's faults. I think that's just how it all played out. And at the same time that it wasn't their fault, it's also tough to enter a new era if the star is gone. Right. We could talk day and night about whether she was the star or not, but I do think just on a black and white paper reading it level, she had solo hits outside of the group and the others did not have solo hits outside of the group. She had a name outside of the group. She had a famous friendship with Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. She was doing solo interviews. She was paparazzi in the way that the other gals were not. So I think it depends on how you look at it. Right. So as you were mentioning, Camilla's solo career happens kind of in tandem with Fifth Harmony's third record. Let's first talk about the self-titled third Fifth Harmony album that comes out in 2017, a year after 727. What's happening here? I think you've alluded to this in the past, but it feels like the magic actually does kind of feel lost here on some level. Not that some of the songs aren't good, but the ebullient energy that powered the best Fifth Harmony song is, is not totally present here. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a workmanlike quality to this music, in my opinion. To me, self-titled Fifth Harmony feels like it had 
to happen, not like they wanted it to happen. Mm, interesting. I think if they had taken more time and made the album that they all really wanted to make, I think we would be having a different conversation. Mm. I think there was probably a lot of talk internally, and I certainly don't know this to be true. I would assume there was a lot of internal talk about beating Camila. I think that was probably a large part of this. Because you want to own the narrative. If you're a five-person group and one of the members leaves, you want to beat them to the punch. You want to put out your next body of work. Right. You want to have something to say. You want to control that narrative. So there's that. And I would also say that the second problem with the self-titled album is that in a backwards way, they got more control over what they were saying and who they were working with. I say that is a problem or a concern because they didn't really have that before. If you look back at the credits of the EP, the first album, the second album, I think they show up on Flex as all credited songwriters. I think that's just the one song on that record. And I don't know if that's a glamour credit or if they actually had anything to do with it. So they have entered this era, not only one member down, but also seemingly in new control of their own career. Mm. The problem in so much as I see it is that they either don't know what they want to say or they don't have the tools with which to say it properly. Three of the four of them are not really songwriters and Lauren obviously had done some light songwriting before X Factor, but that's different than adult songwriting. Right. And so I think what happens with Fifth Harmony is not only do you get a lot of retread for the third time. Yeah, a lot of work from home runoff here on this record. A lot of work from home runoff on this record, but you also get some really muddled, disappointing, flat songwriting in the way that you would think them taking the wheel would yield more personal stories, more exciting stuff, more lived-in experience, and it doesn't translate that way. I wonder if this is where the prefabness does bite them in the ass because there isn't that much holding this group together at the end of the day. You know what I mean? They don't have a very long career. They really didn't have anything to do with each other to begin with, aside from the fact that they were placed in this circumstance. They experienced becoming famous together and they shared that experience and the joy and fun of that is very evident on reflection on our parts of 727 mm. but when i was listening to this record i was kind of like well were the other four of them just being like well camilla stepped out and she's having success what are we still doing here exactly and that's kind of what the vibe of this album feels like the most interesting moment of this entire album cycle to me so there's the lead single down which is a complete work from home retread down to the repetitiveness of the word happening over and over again, the pseudo DJ Mustard production. I do like Down, but it's a very obvious attempt to like recreate the magic of work from home. But they do do this performance that was making me fucking crack up. I think it's the VMAs, is that right? It is at the VMAs, and it's 2017, and Camila is watching from home, and we know this <laughs> because in a New York Times interview that she does, I think about six months later, she talks about it publicly for the first time. So she's watching it at home yeah. with her mom, and they are all on top of a box on stage, and it's five of them, and it's yeah. dimly lit, yeah. and one of them is sort of forcefully pulled backwards... <laughs> off of this box and then they all peel back their hoods to yeah. become fourth harmony instead of <laughs> fifth harmony. Uh... 
<laughs> yeah, and then to me, I think there is a sort of feeling of the magic is gone. The power is not in it anymore. And it registers. I mean, Down peaks at number 40-something. None of these other singles chart. This album is, would it be wrong to characterize this as a flop? No, it wouldn't be wrong at all. And then, of course, this is the last Fifth Harmony album. Have they officially disbanded or have they just unofficially hiatus? They're on a break is what they describe it as so that they could, I think the statement said something to the extent of so we can each pursue solo careers or individual careers, whatever they described it as. Yeah. So that we can bring back what we learned to Fifth Harmony. And how has that gone for each of them? I mean, we know that Camilla had a very successful first record with Havana being a huge hit right around the same time that this Fifth Harmony album was out. She had another follow-up hit from that record, Never Be the Same, that was a top tenor. She had Senorita on obviously, with Shawn Mendes, but then has kind of struggled in her second and third records to really maintain that sort of A-listy pop status, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think, nonetheless, Camilla is the most successful of the five. For sure. That's inarguable. She has numerous number one songs. Yes. And I think it's a combination of she had a running start. Yes. A year's running head start. And I was going to say, Brennan, earlier that as much as I want to hate her for abandoning the girlies, you need that kind of ambition sometimes. Someone's got to be the first out of the gate. You can get shit from that. She was clearly savvy and like who she was hanging out with. The Taylor thing was smart. The sort of romance with Shawn Mendes, all of these things. That is what you need to be a successful pop singer in many ways. It's not just about the tunes. It's about this bigger 360 degree thing. So in some ways, I don't begrudge her. She was the one that displayed the ambition possibly necessary to get a solo pop career off the ground in a way. She was playing the long game. Yeah. And not only that, I also think that she is the one with the clearest sense of self musically and artistically. Right. If we talk about the rest of them, it's a mixed bag. Right. I'd say the second most successful in terms of pure listenership is probably tied between Lauren and Normani for different ways. Lauren, I think, has been smartest about cultivating a sound and a fan base. Right. Lauren came out as bisexual during that last Fifth Harmony record. She's got that great song with Halsey. Love that song. Strangers. That song is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And has really leaned into the singer-songwriter of it all, is very involved in every piece of her music, is endlessly interesting to me, even if I don't love every song that she puts out. I care when Lauren puts music out because I know she has been very involved in the process of making it. Mm -hmm. Normani, a fascinating case study. Oh. She came out of the gate with motivation. Yeah. If you're listening to this episode, you've heard and seen the music video for Motivation. <laughs> It is just incredible. And the video is stunning and she dances her ass off in it. It has something to say. It has a sound. Mm -hmm. And then she disowned it. Yeah. She disowned it. She talks in interviews all the time about how it wasn't what she wanted. Yeah. She felt rushed. She didn't like it. It wouldn't have been the song she put out first. And unfortunately, to me, everything that she has put out since has been interesting, if not good. I agree. I find her solo career really sad. And I, something is going really wrong there. I don't know if it's her or the people that are guiding her career or whatever it is. But there's potential there that just feels like they just can't realize it. And the window, to me, for her to be like a superstar feels like it's fast closing and I don't quite know what she could do to right the ship at this point. 
China hasn't released solo music since 2020. Mm-hmm. It's 2023. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And Ali? Ali had a middlingly successful string of DJ collaborations. I alluded to that earlier. <laughs> she worked with people mm-hmm. like Batoma. I think she worked with Afrojack. She sort of became the, if not in demand. The foxes of her time. <laughs> yeah, the foxes of her time. The available singer who could hit those notes. <laughs> All right, so what is, in your mind, Fifth Harmony's legacy? I mean, they haven't had a lot of time to build a legacy. This obviously is all recent history, but is there ways in which we see their imprint, their impact on pop or on girl groups? I mean, we talked about flow earlier. Do there obvious ways that we can sort of look back now with even the power of some hindsight and see the impact or influence of Fifth Harmony on pop music that's come after it. I'm going to say this with gritted teeth, which is I actually don't think that they have much of a lasting impact on pop music. (laughs) And it is hard for me to say that. But it is also hard for me to look with clear eyes and see ways that they have profoundly impacted the music industry. If I'm being generous about it, I would say this. They were... If not at the forefront, then definitely helped usher along this strong hip-hop, R&B, pop crossover influence in the early 2010s, mid-2010s that sort of became the sound of Spotify, today's Mm -hmm. top hits, etc. I don't know that I would necessarily credit it to them, but some of their successes were loud enough, strong enough, reached enough ears that I'm sure record labels signed people had songs written and produced to sound like those songs, Mm -hmm. and I think unintentionally laid the groundwork for the way that pop music was going to sound for many years afterwards. I think that's me being overly generous. Right. If I'm being honest, I think their legacy is actually in the people that they worked with or the people who decided that Mm. they would work with them. I think those are some great portfolio songs that catapulted some people like Ricky, who was already succeeding elsewhere. Justin and Julia got some early co-writes on some Fifth Harmony songs. Monsters and Stranger. I think it was sort of this time in pop music where, once again, we were moving past Max Martin and figuring out what the sound was going to be. And a lot of these young upstart or long working, but never super popular producers and songwriters got the opportunity to show what they could do and Mm. became, if not household names, then mainstays on radio. And I think ultimately, and again, I'm being generous here, I do think we are better off for having a lot of those names in the conversation today. It was early days for so many of these people And it's great. Sometimes you need to have these opportunities to cut your teeth on low stakes things and they really (laughs) succeed for you. And I know it sounds like I'm being shady. No, no, no. I think that you're dead on. It's right. These are really well-made pop albums that provided a forum for pop production and songwriting. Yes. It's just hard when you look at someone like One Direction, who is a success out of X Factor, and see what those splintered members have done. Yeah. And then you look at see what these splintered members have done and it just is... Not the same. I guess maybe a better question than legacy is, how do you think Fifth Harmony will be remembered? Again, this is going to sound shady, but it comes from a place of love. I think they are going to be remembered for how scrappy they were and for the infighting in those final years. (laughs) It's very easy to find videos of shady moments between the group. I think it's very easy to find videos of, I won't name the member, but a certain member dancing one beat behind the rest of them. (laughs) It's very easy to find those gifs in videos. And they're funny and they're memeable. And that is sort of the language of young people on the internet. And so if they are remembered for anything, I think it's going to be kind of the ways in which they delightfully flopped even if they had some great songs along the way. If you don't treat your mama right, bye-bye. 
All right, final topic of conversation. Where does Fifth Harmony belong in the pop pantheon in your estimation? Okay, I am straddling two here, so I would love to know your feedback. Okay, let's hear. I could see them in blue collar pop stars, but I also think maybe the also rands is a place for them. Yeah. And it hurts my heart. <laughs> like, are they too? It fast? hurts my heart to say it, but I think I know. on a just practical level, in five years from now, if I bring them up, are people going to remember them? It's really a good question. I think your assessment is exactly right. Let's run through the blue collar tier four requirements. The other thing is they could be in the other tier four section. Flash in the pans. Which maybe I actually think is more fitting for them yeah. actually. Like a little bit flash in the pans. So let's think about that. One or two big albums with three to five big hit singles that are recognizable to many people who are not in the artist core fan base. I don't know if they have that to be honest with you. I think they have two decent sized albums and what songs are truly going to be remembered outside of the Fifth Harmony fan base? Worth it and work from home. Yes, exactly. They've got two. Name recognizable to people who weren't of prime age in their moment. I don't know if they're going to have that. No, I think they're name recognizable to stands, not to anyone else. Yeah. Like, I don't think my mom has any idea who they are. If it's obvious that they have one or two signature songs, and it's very clear what they are, yes, obviously. Easily mistaken for other artists, yes. Not taken particularly seriously by mainstream audiences, aside from being points of nostalgia. I think you're right. They're really cuspy five to four. I want to say that they make it just into four because I wouldn't qualify them as one-hit wonders. There's more of a story there for them than there is for, I don't know, Nicole Scherzinger's solo career or something. I agree. I think they're just over the line into tier four. It will make my heart happy and it will make me sleep well at night to know that they landed in flash of the pants. <laughs> yes, I think that's where we can put them. Really tight and close and potentially could be revised at a later date when we have a better perspective on whether worth it even lasts. I'm willing to put them at the very bottom of tier four for now. <laughs> I agree. I think that's a beautiful place for them and they should be happy to have a home. I agree. Thank you for not fighting me on that. There's so many times I'm on here and I'm like, oh man, I know my guest loves this person so much and they're going to be like, I think they're icons. I think they should be in tier one. I know exactly who my girls are and what they deserve. <laughs> All right, so final question for you, Brendan. What is an underrated Fifth Harmony song, maybe something we haven't spent a lot of time on that we could send the podcast out on? I would love to suggest they released a 727 Japanese bonus track called Big Bad Wolf. Yeah. And it is a great song. It should have made the main album. My choice would have been I'm in Love with a Monster, but Drag Race just used it as a very iconic lip sync song here in America. Mm -hmm. So the gays all know that one now if they didn't before. So I think Big Bad Wolf would be a wonderful song to go out on. Okay, let's go out on Big Bad Wolf. Brennan Carley, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If you wanna talk, baby, use your hands. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Fifth Harmony officially in tier four. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so, so much to the incredible Brendan Carley for being such a wonderful guest, to the amazing Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and of course to Alexandra Lobo for her help with the artwork for the episode. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I. V. Get our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And of course, I hope to see you guys at Gorgeous Gorgeous, May 6th, Saturday in downtown Los Angeles. Click the link in the show notes to get tickets. Patreon subscribers DM if you want to get on the list. And until I see you guys next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.